Mark, you're very welcome to the show. Mark, I know you're author of many, many books. Where I came across you first was in a book called Just Listen, which was a huge success for you. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about where you got the inspiration for that book? Well, what I realized is, uh, and it's interesting that you're interviewing me because I can't get arrested in the United States selling listening. Because in America, they don't want to listen. They want to be, <laughs> be listened to. No, I kid you not. And uh, despite that, the book has done very well. It's in 21 languages, and I think it became the top-ranked uh, book on listening in the world. But uh, it came to me because as I look out in the world, and I know this is addressing salespeople, what I see is people not listening. I see people talking at, talking over, and not taking a hint when your customer or client doesn't want doesn't to hear any more from you. And in fact, what happens is the more you pick up that you could lose the sale and the customer or client is getting restless, the more you speak, you know, because you try to reel them back in and you're just chasing them away further. So when I look out in the world, to be honest, I think all of the problems of the world, internationally, uh, in people's companies, in people's homes, in people's marriages, is people don't listen to each other. And people resent being talked at or being talked over. And everybody knows that intellectually, but people feel under such pressure, especially salespeople. They, oh, but we have to close our numbers and we have to push and we have to push. But if you ask a salesperson, well, how do you like when someone's pushing something and feeling disrespectful? Oh, I can't stand it. So why do you do it? Well, because I have to get my numbers. Well, how's that working for you? Well, it's a volume business. I figure if I make a thousand, you know, unwelcome calls, maybe I'll close three, you know. So it's a, I, got, I just got frustrated seeing how people don't listen to each other. And in your research, Mark, what have you come across in terms of the, the, the root causes for that? Because you know what, when, you, when you're talking to somebody and, and it might be just a story about how your day went, it might not be anything all that important, but you can tell when they're not listening or when you're talking to say somebody in a business context, they're looking at you, they're looking at what you're saying, they're, 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 they're paying attention to the words, but they're not processing it. What, what are the kind of things are at the root cause of that? Which is, a, you know, a, it's a common disease right across the world. Well, I think the root cause of people talking too much and people not listening is anxiety. And so what, what's interesting is when your anxiety goes up, uh, I'll give you a little, uh, just enough neuroscience to be dangerous and probably inaccurate. When your anxiety goes up, something in your body called cortisol goes up. Cortisol is related to stress. It comes out of your adrenal glands. And what happens is as stress, anxiety, cortisol goes up, there's a part of your brain uh, in the emotional part of your brain called an amygdala, which actually hijacks you away from being able to think. And actually what happens is your blood flow stops flowing to your upper brain and flows to your lower brain, which is more about survival. And so the more anxious people are, 
the more they can't even access their upper brain. And what Just Listen is about, it's about the power of connecting to a person from where they're coming from. Because just to finish the neuroscience part of this, is the antidote to high cortisol is oxytocin. And oxytocin is the cuddle hormone. It's the hormone of connectedness. And what happens is when people feel connected to another person as opposed to run over by another person, the cortisol goes down, the oxytocin goes up, the amygdala goes back into its holster, and the blood flow returns to your upper brain so you can begin to think. This is why when you're dealing with, when I deal with a male energy uh, and they're pedal to the metal, I say, how does that play at home? How's your spouse or kids like that when you're pedal to the metal? And they all laugh. And they say, uh, what are you laughing at? Well, I, they say, half of us are divorced. I said, well, maybe it didn't work out so well. And see, the issue is that, um, and one of the reasons why, and this is sort of a tangent, but hopefully it'll be interesting, uh, or at least relevant. One of the reasons that female energy and women live longer than men is because when both feel stressed, both feel anxious, their cortisol goes up. What happens to men is they pull away, they withdraw, they get vulnerable, they get paranoid, and then they come up with a way to take the hill, to come back and master it. The problem with that is their cortisol stays high, and study shows that if you live a life with high cortisol, over time the cortisol starts to break down nerve cell membranes in your brain. And so high sustained cortisol uh, is not really good for your brain. On the other hand, Women know that if they can connect, if they can just feel heard and actually feel felt, which what Just Listen is about, what happens is their oxytocin goes up and they will come up with the solutions. They don't want advice or solutions. They want to feel heard because what they really want is they want, they know instinctively that when that bonding hormone goes up, they'll be able to get blood flow to their upper brain. Maybe that's why we have a word called mansplaining, mansplaining not woman-splaining. That's exactly right. You know, so man, and and here's, here's another thing uh, when you get to mansplaining. Something that goes on, and Paul, I'll bet you'll say, oh, I know so many people that do that. Uh, one of the things that often happens with people who talk too much is early on when you start to talk, it's about giving information. But then what happens is when you're talking, and it's actually happening to me, so you may want to kick me to the curb, but after you start talking and someone's listening to you like you're listening to me, it crosses over from actually giving information to just, it feels great to talk. Oh, I'm getting so much off my chest, Paul. Uh, uh, I don't know what I'm talking about. Boy, does this feel good. And then what happens is when you start to feel that, there's a chance that the other person feels used by you to get stuff off your chest just to feel better. And then what happens unconsciously is you begin to sense, uh-oh, I think I've overstayed my welcome. 
uh-oh, I think I talked too much. Uh-oh, well, let me see if I can reel them back in. And this happens almost universally. Isn't that just a case, though, of self-awareness, that as you realize you're talking past the point of interest, that you're picking up on the signals, and you're able to say, actually, enough about me. How was your day? Exactly. In fact, that's a great way to do that. Um, one of the things that I suggest in my uh, book, Just Listen, is something that I call the Columbo effect. So Columbo was a television series that was pretty popular, I'm not sure, many years ago in the 70s. I remember it well. It was the 70s. <laughs> yeah, and the uh, Peter Falk, I think, was the detective. And what he would do is he would act confused. You know, and the more confused he act, the more he disarm other people. So one of the things that I suggest, and you can say, you can say, you know, in a very, you know, uh, Irish or British way, well, enough about me, what about you? And you can do that, and, you, and, and that's fine too, and I'd recommend that. But the Columbo uh, maneuver, which is in Just Listen, is when you catch you've been doing it, and they may be in, disengaged, what you say to them, what you do is you actually tap yourself on the head, and you say, ah, oh, I'm doing it again. And they're, they're going to wake up and say, what? I'm doing it again. And I told myself I wouldn't do it, but I'm doing it again. This is so difficult. Oh, you know, I, I, I've done it just again. And so what happens? They're going to say, what? What did you do just again? Oh, I can't believe I've done it again. And they're going to say, tell me, what is it? I talked over you. I talked at and over you. And be honest with me. What was the last thing you actually listened to from me? That's interesting. And it's a great way to do it as well, because you're, you're very vulnerable when you do that. You're, you're putting it out there, but people do, do respond to it. I could, I could imagine that very, very well. It's, it's, it's interesting actually you say that because it validates some of the stuff we talk about in sales training when we're getting people to listen. It's not just to, st some people I think think listening is just not talking. It's the opposite of not talking and, and it isn't. It's that we call it the Columbo, it's the, the dummy up, the, the Socratic question. And I'm a little confused. Help me understand. Are you saying? And, and it's, it's what it's doing is it's seeking to understand. And I think that's a, that's a powerful place. But I want to come back because you mentioned that anxiety, stress can be a real barrier. And I get that because it fires off cortisol, which, which uh, gets the amygdala running and and, and, and I, I, I can see that and I can imagine lots of listeners can see themselves in those situations. What about those scenarios where people don't listen because they just don't believe you have anything worthwhile saying? Maybe it's because of hubris, their position, their experience, their prejudices. Where does listening come into that? How do we get people to listen there? Well, I, I think, you explained it very well that there's a lot of people who don't listen because they think they know it know better than who they're talking to. Uh, but often what's going on is there are people who uh, uh, feel very competent in a very narrow part of life. And some of those people in that narrow part of life make millions. So they believe that they're right about everything. And so one of the reasons they don't listen is they don't want to be pulled into the parts of life that they're not so competent, confident, and in control. 
And so they will tune out anything that causes them uh, to be uncertain or feel incompetent. And, uh, and they will draw people back into the area where they feel, and it's, and it's like a psychological silo, competent, confident, in control. And so they'll often tune out anything outside of it. And this is what gets in the way of departments cooperating with each other. You know, why sales and operations and IT uh, have trouble listening to each other because as soon as the other department which has a different competence uh, level, starts using, especially when they start using uh, jargon that is common to them, what happens is the other people tune out or they look for reasons to justify tuning out. And that happens, that happens again, almost universally. So what you're saying, if I understood it, is that anxiety is also at the root cause of that, that people are anxious or, or the fear of being exposed causes them anxiety, only they've got this hard shell on and they, don't, they haven't got the self-awareness to admit it to themselves. Exactly, and it's not just being exposed to the other person, it's being exposed to yourself. Um, that's why, um, you know, I, I was a therapist for many years and one of the turning points in a person's life, but one of the worst points in your life is when as as sure as you thought you were about something is as wrong as you turned out to be because when that occurs especially when you were a hundred percent certain about something and you were absolutely wrong it can threaten to spread and make you feel boy if i was wrong about that i'm probably wrong about everything mm. I'm not even sure if I'm certain about anything. And so again, part of our uh, sort of self-protective mechanism is we steer clear from that. And yet, if you can reach one of those points where you can, where you can be clear and clean about it and, and, and really admit to yourself and even to someone else, you know, as sure as I was about that is as wrong as I turned out to be. Yeah, that's interesting because it, it comes back to what you were saying earlier about that need for certainty, which can cause us to put those walls up. Yeah, there, it was interesting. You know, I spoke in Russia, which was the most, we, I must tell you, I spoke in Moscow for six hours on listening because my book, Just Listen, did very well in Russia. The Russian edition is called I Hear You Through and Through. And, uh, and they didn't hear me in English. They, I, I was in real time translated into Russian. And I'll tell you something that I did at the beginning, and I think this would be a helpful thing for salespeople. Uh, and I did this in the first 15 minutes, and I think because of it, I had, them at, I had their attention for six hours. And what I said, and you can use this as a salesperson, and then I'll, I'll say what I said in uh, Russia, but this is how we're a salesperson. So these were all managers from Russian Federation. These were not political leaders. These are people trying to you know, get better results. So I started out and I said, you know, it's always a good idea when you're talking to people to, to, to try and get where they're coming from. You know, know who you're talking to and know where they're coming from. So let me see if I uh, have it right. 
And I call this the three da formula. I said, so let me see if I get your situation. Your managers, you're judged on your results. You don't actually do anything. You get people to do things. So uh, is that true that you're judged on your results and your results are based on the work of others that you manage? Duh. Uh, yes. <laughs> and then I said, let me see if I get you in your situation. When you are very pushy, domineering, uh, uh, and sometimes even bullying to get those results, it's not getting you quite the results that you'd like Plus, it's causing the other people stress. It's stressing you out. Uh, when it's not working for you, you're drinking more. You're not taking care of yourself. And so you're actually looking for a different way that will be less stressful and get you better results. Is that true? Da. <laughs> and then I said, and then here's the third thing. So you get their situation. You get where they are in the situation. And the third thing is you get where they're wanting to go. And I said, and the reason you're here is you're hoping to learn another way to get better results that's less stressful. And what you're hoping for is that I will give you something where I'm not upselling you in all kinds of courses and other stuff. And uh, where I'm not, this is not just a pitch for you to hire me. So you're hoping that I can give you something uh, that's totally workable that you can use today, that you don't have to be a psychologist to use, that you don't even have to like psychology, you don't even have to like insight. You're hoping that I can give you some tactics that you immediately can use that will get you those results and you don't have to buy anything more than the price of admission and your time. Would that be worth your of the time and money you paid for today? Oh, uh, duh! <laughs> duh. I don't know if you remember, Mark, back in the 80s, there was a German band called Trio, and the song was called Da, Da, Da. Ich lieb dich nicht, du liebst mich nicht. I don't know if you maybe don't remember, but it had no, that no. throughout the whole thing. It might make a great soundtrack to the back of that story. It's a great story, and it was all Da, Da, Da. I'm going to get it. You'll have to send me a link. I, I'll, send I, you a, I'll send you a link to it. Yeah, it was real... Uh, 80s techno pop. I won't guarantee that you'll like it, but it is, it's an interest. It certainly was different. I'll, I'll tell you that. Um, but going back to, to, to listening, and you said something was interesting because there, and I know you've been involved in hostage negotiation, and there's another gentleman. His name is Voss. He's yeah, Craig Voss. Yeah, he's a friend of mine. He lives in LA, and uh, he wrote Never Split the Difference. That's it. And he also talked about getting people to go, that's right, which is the equivalent of da, 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 where, where it's coming from, you know, you get me. And I think when people feel that, it's what you said earlier, when people feel, felt, is that the, it's just the barriers come down and then information can flow. Absolutely. And, I'll, and here's a tip that I hope listeners will find useful. And, and, and where a lot of salespeople fail. Because there's so much pressure on salespeople to sell something, they're, they're focused on getting the customer or client to buy. And what salespeople need to be, if you want to have a lasting and successful career, 
you need to focus on the customer or clients being successful. Because if you sell them a great product or service that can't be implemented, unless you're McKinsey, you're not going to get away with it. Yeah. And, and so you need to focus on them uh, being able to be successful with whatever they're buying. And something I suggest when I coach sales teams or speak to them is uh, a good question if a service or product is to say to the uh, customer client, uh, if you buy this, it represents something that you're adding to your company, to the products, services that you have to use. Uh, uh, take me to uh, what's the, how, what is the best way that you, your company has been able to implement anything new, like a new product or service, so that it actually works out and delivers on its promise. You know, help me understand what would be necessary if by chance uh, you buy this as a solution will need to happen so that, uh, so that six months or a year from now, people are saying that was great. You really added value. You helped us be more successful because if I convince you about all the bells and whistles, and this is a wonderful product or service, but it's not implementable, it's going to come back to bite you. So, so help me understand that process. And what's really interesting is when you help someone actually get clear about something that they don't think about, it's amazing the appreciation that it triggers. There's something I talked about in Just Listen, uh, and it's called the impossibility question. And uh, there was an anecdote where I was on a television show in, uh, in the States called The View. And what happened is the producer uh, who had booked me, you know, was checking that everything was okay. And he came into the, what's called the green room. And I said, hey, can I ask you a question? And he looked at me annoyed, like I was going to, he was probably expecting me to say, can I hold my book up? Can you plug my book? Is it going to be listed under my name? And he, and he said, what? I said, uh, I said, where do you want to be in five years? And he said, what? I said, yeah, where do you want to be in five years? He said, why are you asking? I said, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a psychiatrist. I ask questions. Just answer the question. And he said, well, I'd like to be an executive producer of a show like this. You know, be like the head of it. Mm. Uh, he says, I've been in this other uh, position for 10 years. And I said, what would be something that would be impossible for you to do, but if you could do it, would rapidly accelerate your becoming an executive producer? And so he paused and he said, there's a missing intern named Chandra Levy, and we don't know if she's been murdered or not, but if I could find her alive and get an exclusive interview uh, with her by Barbara Walters, who's the big, you know, the big honcho in our show, I would Walters radar. I said, good. So we don't know if we'll ever find her alive, and she did turn up dead. But so what you're saying is, uh, uh, what would make it possible is to find things that would wow Barbara Walters and cause her to say, who's getting me these stories? Mm. And he paused. He said, yes, exactly. So in a sense, 
it was impossible to get Chandra Levy, but it may be possible for him to now use a filter. You know, what is it that would cause Barbara Walters to say, who's getting me these stories? So this is how you build relationships. So he leaves the room, you know, he's rushing off. And then about two minutes later, he walks back in, he's calmer, and he looks at me and he says, you know, I've been, as I said, I've been in this position booking people like you for 10 years. And that's the most helpful question anyone has ever asked me uh, that could help my career. Thank you. That's a great so, story, Mark. I'm sorry to cut, I, I didn't mean to cut across you there. You know, I'm finished, yes, it's done. Um, because it points to something else in listening. It's, it's, it's a great question that, that fires off that thought process. But also what you did there was, when you heard him talk about that, that intern, was you were able to abstract from that something else that was, you know, what was really important, that this was just a story, but beneath that story, his real motive was, which was about impressing Barbara Walters. Yeah, so hey, let's do it with you, Paul. Paul, let's do yeah. it with you. Yeah. What would, what would be something that would be impossible for you to do? And the reason you say it that way is if I suggested things that are impossible, yeah. you'd say, yeah, that's impossible. I don't have the time. Well, that's impossible. So up front, you say, uh, as I'm saying, Paul, what would be something that would be impossible to do, but if you could do it? would rapidly accelerate uh, your success, your results in your career, but it's impossible. Okay. Uh, it would be to sit down in a room with somebody like Mark Benioff, head of Salesforce, or Larry Elliston, head of Oracle. Somebody like that who's in, in, a, in an ivory tower, so far away, both geographically and also culturally, that I see it as impossible. So what would make it possible to get uh, their interest in speaking to you? I think if there's, there's two things that spring to mind. One is if a close personal friend of theirs was able to introduce me by pointing to something substantial, some, something that was going to make a difference in their life, or I was able to approach them some way, get their attention, something that caught their, 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 their imagination that made them stop and at least ask, what's this, and engage and open up that conversation. That's I'll, give you an, I'll give you an example of the latter and tell me what you think. Um, something I will tell you and listeners is that a lot of powerful people write books. Mm -hmm. Now, I've written a lot of books, doesn't make me powerful, but a lot of powerful people, you know, they write books because, and they have, you know, writers who help them bring it out. Uh, I know the writer who helped write uh, Craig Voss's book, Tal Raz. He also helped Keith Ferrazzi write his books, and Beth Comstock from GE, her, her book just came out and he co wrote that. And so they have writers, but when a book comes out, it's like having a child. You want it to do well, but you don't know if it's intelligent, ugly, stupid. And one of the things I will tell you that authors, powerful people do, is they will go to Amazon and look up reviews. 
you know, initially. Um, and when you can write a review that, uh, that gives them an insight that reinforces something or gives them an, an additional insight into something that's important to them, you actually capture their attention. I, I have another anecdote if I can share with you. Yes, please. A, you know, early on, uh, I'm not sure how many books I had written, but someone said, you know, the editor-in-chief of Parade Magazine, which is a magazine that goes in a lot of Sunday papers, there's a fellow named Walter Anderson. And he wrote a book called The Confidence Course. And someone gave me a copy of it and said, you know, Mark, this guy talks just like you. You should read this. And so I, uh, so I looked at it, but I also noticed that he hadn't had any book reviews. Mm. And a lot of editors don't really push themselves. It's kind of unseemly if you're an editor to say, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. And so I thought, oh, he doesn't have any book reviews. And what I realized as I read about, you know, the introduction and the backstory, and he shared something about some of his challenges with his father and, you know, how that made him who he was. Well, to make a long story short, now, a lot of your listeners are going to say, well, you know, you know, Dr. Goulston, you're a wordsmith. You can come up with that. Well, yeah, but all of you can drill down into articles you read, into books that you read. So my review, I can't remember it entirely. And I said, this is a smorgasbord of wisdom uh, seasoned with humility uh, and, and lessons learned. But the greatest gift that Walter Anderson has for the reader is he gets to be the, the, the loving, wise father to the reader that he never had. I get an email from Walter Anderson within 12 hours. <laughs> I could believe but that. You, you follow what I'm saying? So, it's, yep, yep. so I'm, saying, I'm saying you can, you can read things. And if you can read between the lines, now a lot of salespeople say, I can't, I can't even read the lines. I have no attention span. How am I going to read between the lines? Well, uh, so I'm just saying that's one way to make it possible. But that, would, but that built on what you were saying is, well, uh, how do we capture the imagination of people? And I think when you give them a better way to be more successful, as I did with the fellow on the television show, or when I actually got, you know, a pain point in Walter Anderson about his relationship with his father, you know, that gets through to people. It sure does. I can well believe it. Uh, Mark, talking to crazy, I'd like to talk to you about that. It's a fantastic title. Love the title. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about what prompted you to write that? Because that's very different to your book on uh, your Just Listen book talking to crazy it's one is just listen one is talking to crazy where are the connections between the two? Oh, well, i'll tell you it's a seamless handoff because in the book just listen uh, and i get a lot of interviews uh, requests but there's a couple chapters in just listen that people ask me about we didn't talk about it today but one of them a chapter was steer clear of toxic people so that's in just listen mm -hmm because everybody has toxic people in their life. And then there's another chapter in Just Listen, which says how to go from OF, we'll call it fudge, 
OF to OK. And it's basically a quick way to calm yourself down, especially when one of these toxic people makes you nuts. So I thought, boy, I'm getting a lot of attention on those two chapters. And just listen is how do you get people to open up? Whereas talking to crazy is a little bit like Craig Voss's book. It's a way of once you get people to open up, how do you get in and get them to calm down? How do you get them to go from irrational to rational? And here's a takeaway. Uh, that I think people will like and they'll get a chuckle at. And let's see if I can make you chuckle. Um, it's not unusual for hard driving, results oriented people to sometimes have friction with uh, the, uh, a person in their life who processes things more emotionally. Mm -hmm. we, we talked about that earlier, cortisol versus oxytocin. But, uh, so he, but here's an example of uh, how to calm down crazy. So if you're having a, a discussion uh, and it becomes an argument and the person you're dealing with is getting really emotional and the more you try to say calm down or give them advice, the worse it makes it. Uh, what you're going to do with them is a process that I call mediated catharsis. And what that means is you're going to give them ugly, ugly words that they're feeling towards you that they haven't yet escalated to. So let's say you're doing it with a spouse. Or you can do this with a teenager who refuses to do their homework. Um, well, why don't we do it the, the teenager thing? Okay, we, okay, just for the sake of it. And I actually wrote it. Pardon, did you have one? I have one of those, yeah. Okay, so I want you to imagine a scenario. Here's a teenager, is, not, uh, is playing too many video games, needs to study, keeps putting it off. Uh, now in America, what would often happen is uh, the dads will say something, but then if the, uh, if the child gets too, uh, too disrespectful, often that dad will get so ticked off he might say to the mother, uh, you deal with them. You, you deal with them. I can't deal with them. You know, and, and the reason that dad's saying that is because you know, he, my daughter or my son, just got me too angry. They just said something. They just blew me off. You know, it's your kid. You deal with them. So this was advice that I gave to mothers who have to deal with it. So I want you to imagine here's a son uh, who is not doing his homework. He's a teenager. He's going through a lot of, you know, the difficult challenges and he's actually using the video games as a way of letting off steam and so you're the mom and you go into his room and this is exactly what you say um in this tone uh, uh, about the homework i want to try something that might make it might work better than what we usually do okay and he or she is going to look at you mm -hmm. imagine it's a son and he's going to say, what? Uh, now, maybe, they, maybe they're more respectful in uh, the UK or Ireland, but America, so many no. teenagers. Are kids are kids. Yeah. And so imagine he says, what? And then uh, she says to him, and she looks him right in the eye uh, and says, why don't you try this? She says, say this exactly back to me. 
mom, when you come in and tell me to do my homework and you tell me to do it in that sort of, you know, sweet voice of you, it makes me freaking crazy. You're actually making it worse because it actually makes me hate my life and hate you and dad, clueless dad even more. So can you just put a sock in it because you're not going to make me do homework approaching it that way, huh? <laughs> and so you, and he's going to say, what? And you repeat something like that. And, and, then, and then he'll be hesitant. And then you say, no, lean into it. Come on, hit me with your best <laughs> shot. No, so you're, you're like the son. You're getting this. And so what happens is, is you don't get defensive as the mother because you're actually mediating him getting stuff off his chest, which is worse than he would usually say. And as he begins to say, and you say, come on, lean into it, what will happen is he will get stuff off his chest and he will start to laugh. And not only that, he will start to be grateful because teenagers don't like disliking their parents. They oh. just don't know why they do. I've heard teenagers, one teenager said years ago, he said, you know, the only thing I hate more than my parents is hating them. Yeah. I just hate hating them, but, but you know, but they're so ridiculous. And so what you're doing is you're enabling that teenager to get the hatred out safely. And you're not getting defensive and say, you, you better go to your room, which only makes them more use the video games more. And so what happened, you, if you, you follow what I'm saying? You're Absolutely. It, it sounds really like a pattern intro to me. It yeah. is totally. Yeah. It is totally. Yeah. And it's an it, empathic thing. Yeah. Because there is this, um, pattern behavior you know uh, he said she said but when you when you take the other person's lines there's nothing left where do they go it's almost like you've you've you've, you've chopped their legs off in not, not in a cruel way but in a oh it's almost empowering by being disempowering well what you know so what you're doing is you're you're you're, you're empathizing with something that they often hold back on because they're so frustrated but you're actually in, empowering them and giving them words to express the depth of their hostility safely, because normally if they did it on their own, you'd say, you know, you better take a time out, which just, you know, frustrates them even more. And they may calm down, but they're not going to get to homework uh, anytime soon. soon. Can I share another anecdote yes, that'll make you laugh? Yes, please. Okay, we're going to go back to uh, the he said, she said. So this woman comes up to me. And this is out of context. And she said, I got to talk to you about my husband. I said, what? She said, he's an engineer type. And he says that I blither. <laughs> and he's absolutely right. And when we go out with other people, I blither, but people like me and they think he's a bit stiff. You know, people sort of respect that he's intelligent and that's where it ends. You know, he's, he's not comfortable in his own skin. And if we get into an argument, what happens is I get frustrated because he'll give me advice or he'll say, you need to calm down, which just makes me infuriated. Yep. And so I said, okay, here's what you're going to try. And we'll call her Joan and him Jack. And so uh, uh, three days later, she says, I did exactly what you said, and here's the good news and bad news. So this is what you told me to say to Jack. It was escalating, and he was being stiff like he usually is, and uncomfortable, and, but instead of getting angry, I did what you said. I said, 
Jack, I think I got a better way to get us through this. And of course, he was all, he thought it, it was all over and better that, you know, who knows, that we were going to go have drinks and eat. Maybe uh, he'd get lucky that night. He was, he was cool with that. But I said, no, no. So he was feeling great. I said, no, no, I, I think I have a way to get through this. And she said, I looked in his eyes and I said, Jack, say this to me. Joan, when we get into a discussion or an argument and you get all emotional, if I say something, it's wrong. If I say nothing, it's wrong. You make me want to run full speed, speed and smash my head into the wall. You make me nuts. And so she told him, can you say that to me? And I said, well, what happened? She said, well, he was kind of uncomfortable, very awkward, but I kept coaxing him and I kept giving him words. And in about five minutes, he's laying into me with things that date back to his, you know, old girlfriends, his mother, you're just like such and such. He's just laying into me and, I, and I'm just watching him get it off his chest. And you were right. He, I mean, this guy is really kind of constipated. I love him, but he's an engineer. And he's just laying into me and I could see the relief and that's the good news. I said, well, what's the bad news? She said, after he did it, he says to me, I adore you. You're my best friend. Uh, you're the best thing that ever happened to me. And he starts hugging me and he's hugging me like this puppy dog. He's creeping me out. <laughs> I said, oh. I said, don't, I said, don't worry, it'll slip back. But you know, you have yeah. a tool. She, she, she let the genie out of the bottle. There you go. But can yeah. you see how that? So, so talking to crazy is yeah. about all kinds of techniques like that. Yeah. Um, what, what about? Because you, you've, you've, you've written so much on on psychology and the human condition, and just, just in a couple of minutes, because I know we're up against the, the, the time here. Get out of your own way, self, uh, overcoming self-defeating behaviors. That caught my attention because I, it spoke to me in that I know that I get in my own way all of the time. Not in a, just in, li in, in little ways very often uh, where I'll plan on doing something and then decide on doing something else over there and completely distract myself. And even though I know I'm doing it, in the moment, I'm happy distracting myself, and it's—I I can't be alone in that. There, it, when you, when you look at pe those who are highly successful in a particular field, they're obsessive, they're focused, they're disciplined, and everybody else is getting distracted. Uh, they're getting in their own way. Is—is is it curable? I—I <laughs> I think it is, and. Um... And you mentioned something, you said something, you used the word alone. And I think what happens sometimes is when we, when we have a challenge or we're frustrated, or we hit an obstacle, what happens is it reactivates in us times when we felt that way in our life uh, early on. And often we were alone with how we felt. And and so what happens is uh, when that gets reactivated, we seek uh, immediate relief from it. So all self-defeating behaviors make you feel better in the moment. So even though you had to do something that was important, you did something else because doing something else made you feel better for a nanosecond 
took your focus off the thing you were supposed to do. And the problem with all self-defeating behaviors is they make you feel better in the short run. Procrastinating is, is probably the poster child of self-defeating behaviors in that, oh, it's great. I'm going to put it off. I got a three-day weekend. I'll, you know, I can do it on Sunday. Mm. And so what happens is you feel better for the moment. It gives you immediate relief. But in the long term, it costs you more because it adds more pressure if, you, if there's something you've been putting off that you need to do. Not only that, you feel guilty and ashamed of the self-defeating behavior. And so you say, oh, there I go again. When am I going to grow up? I mean, I'm here teaching people about how to be better at sales, and I'm no role model to them. You know, what kind of hypocrite am I? And so what happens with self-defeating behaviors is we engage in them to feel relief, but then afterwards we often feel embarrassed or shame. And I will tell you, one of the top, probably the best tip that I've ever learned, and a lot of people say, you know, Mark, this is your best tip ever. It comes from when I was a, uh, uh, a psychiatrist, training in psychiatry. Uh, there's something called the 72-hour hold. I'm not sure if they have it in Ireland or uh, uh, in Britain. But when someone is a threat to themselves, like they're going to hurt themselves or do something destructive, they're able to put them on a 72-hour hold, put them in a hospital where they can't hurt themselves. And you watch them or you medicate them. And... And one of the things that when I've talked to audiences that I've sometimes asked them is how many of you have had breakthroughs in your life? Great breakthroughs. You know, and usually two thirds of the audience raise their hand. And I say, keep your hand raised if the breakthrough was preceded by a breakdown that was uh, neither desired, wanted, or pleasant. And the majority of those people kept their hands up. And I've had hundreds of breakthroughs in my life, and nearly all of them were preceded by breakdowns, which were not pleasant. And so here's the deal. Uh, if you have a breakdown, and then you use a coping mechanism that you then feel embarrassed about, uh, you will miss the breakthrough because you're too busy apologizing to other people for what you did to cope with the breakdown or you're even dealing with your own inner sense of guilt and shame, oh, I've done it again. And so the, so the tip is, whenever something upsetting is happening or you're stressed, uh, uh, don't do anything to make it worse for 72 hours. So you put yourself on a 72 hour hold uh. and you keep doing you know, just the routines that you're supposed to be doing or your usual routines. Because a lot of the routines we have, exercise and whatnot, help us with our anxiety. So if next time something happens and it would normally cause you to cope with a self-defeating behavior, just say to yourself, don't do anything to make it worse for 72 hours. And in a high percentage of the cases, you, will, you'll be, you won't miss the breakthrough. Because you won't have anything to be ashamed of. And also, uh, you'll get the positive reinforcement from the breakthrough, but you're actually going to start to feel increased self-respect and self-esteem. Like, wow, wow, that was pretty classy. I, I can't believe uh, I was able to deal with it that way. 
it's funny that because, and it's so true, because when you're in that breakdown situation, something's happened, it can feel like it's going to be persistent, it's permanent. And reality, you just give it a couple of days, look back, and it's, it's a distant memory. It doesn't have that hold over you. So I love that. 72-hour hold. Mark, that seems like a, unfortunately, I could listen to you all night. And there, there's just so many areas where we could go. It's fascinating. I want to thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. Uh, it, it's best place for people to get in contact with you, Mark. I know they can go to Amazon to buy any of your books, audio format, print format. But if they would just want to get in contact with you, what's the best way? Okay, so go to markgoulston.com. Uh, we, we've revamped the web page. And, um, and, and people who want to work with me, uh, the, ways, the way companies and individuals work with me, there's basically four ways people hire me. One is to do keynotes. Mm -hmm. Another one is to do workshops, which can lead into ongoing training, you know, if you want to shift the whole department around. Uh, something that I actually like very much is I'm doing mastermind groups with leaders. So, because uh, I can get them to open up and it's pretty lonely at the top. Mm. So I have a number of mastermind groups where, you know, we, we're uh, every uh, couple of weeks, you know, we'll meet on Zoom or Skype. And uh, it's amazing. It's amazing what's going on in some of these people where all the eyes are on them. And so I, I really enjoy the mastermind groups or, uh, or people can, you know, uh, set times to meet with me individually one-on-one -on -one, but that's uh that's a big ticket item i can imagine but so the the, the best way to get you is via your website well, yeah markgoulston.com and uh go to uh or, or go to any of the book uh, uh amazon or barnes and noble i will put one i gotta say one thing uh, i have a personal mission in life mm -hmm. uh, i was a suicide specialist uh for 25 years and the boots on the ground and none of them killed themselves. So I am on a international mission to, uh, to prevent suicide. And if you go to my Twitter page, at Mark Goulston, M-A-R-K-G-O-U-L-S-T-O-M, I have a tweet pinned at the top asking people, have you ever known of someone or known someone, uh, known of or known someone who uh, died by suicide? Uh, and I've created this amazing community. It has 980 comments of half of them talking about all the people that have killed themselves in their lives, people saying they've tried. Uh -huh. It has 1.6 million impressions. Wow. So it's a compassionate community where people can, can come and connect with each other. And I'm, I'm just wanting to grow that because as I said, um, I'm very excited about the work in suicide because I found a way to make empathy scalable. And for those 20 years, it all depended on me. You know, it all depended on my somehow being able to get through to people. But I've developed a process and program uh, where, which can help uh, parents, especially uh, counselors, teachers, coaches, get through to some of those teenagers they're worried about who are depressed and suicidal and get them to open up. And, and we've actually tapped, you can actually see some of the techniques that we talked about in this interview, how you can loosen people up when they're really stuck. Mark, you're an amazing person and you've made such an incredible contribution in people's lives with the work you do. So I want to thank you so much for taking the time out to share with me your stories tonight on our show.
Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Paul, and thank you for listening.